It was her grandfather's Manhattan that inspired our guest to love the art of making cocktails. But what was it about that Manhattan that would lead her to New Orleans? I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Joining us today on our episode sponsored by Louisiana Tourism is the fabulous Abigail Gulo, creative director of Loa Bar in the Beaux-Arts Wonder that is the International House Hotel, which won Best Hotel Bar in America in 2019. She was the first winner of the Heaven Hill Bartender of the Year and a legend in the business. Originally a New Yorker, she's found her home in the Big Easy. Have you ever been to Louisiana? I love it for its Creole and Cajun culture, Mardi Gras, and the beautiful city of New Orleans. But the Pelican State offers so much more, including the amazing live music scene, covering everything from jazz to swamp pop and zydeco. A fascinating history combining diverse cultures, over 400 festivals a year, and adventures including kayaking on the bayous and lakes, hiking in the many national and state parks throughout the state, or the newly launched Louisiana Civil Rights Trail. If you didn't know already, it's the home of the cocktail and gumbo, jambalaya, Tabasco hot sauce, king cake, and beignets. Louisiana offers a food and drink experience that is second to none. Meet craft distillers, brewers, and mixologists who are working with local traditions and making a name for themselves on the Louisiana Culinary Trails or the Louisiana Libations Trail. Let the endless beauty of Louisiana feed your soul and inspire you. You can check out more by visiting louisianatravel.com. Now, let's hear all about that Manhattan. So I've been listening to a few podcasts that not only your own podcast, but a few podcasts you've been on. And somehow they always glide over your upbringing and why you even fell in love with your grandfather's Manhattan and his recipe. And so I really love to know those stories of why you were even drawn to even sample his Manhattan or any cocktails, why you developed this love for it and then now have made it into your career. Mm-hmm. So um, could we start just a little at the beginning? And I Absolutely. may interrupt you a thousand times with about 10 billion different questions. That's Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. So why don't we start at the beginning, even though I kn- know a little bit about this, but I think it would be a good place to... Uh, it always is, obviously, a good place to begin. It's the beginning. Yes. <laughs> something. Okay. So both sides of my family, my father was a farm boy raised in Western New York, and he was an only child. My mother was one of 10 raised in and around New York City. Very different kind of lifestyles, and yet very similar in that they were, my grandparents were all children of the Depression, and they were very thrifty and very prepared. So I was not raised in a household, what carried on into my parents. We didn't go out to eat a lot. Fine dining kind of wasn't something I was ever exposed to. We only went out to eat if mom or dad was too tired to cook. And it was usually pizza, Chinese food, or a diner. And the diner was the fancy option. 
you know, the diner had the placemat with all the drinks on it that I loved and, and studied and used to take home. However, my, uh, my mother's father, my grandfather, they were Hell's Kitchen kids. They lived in New York City. And my great-grandfather worked at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel as a waiter, sometimes barman. That's where he met my great-grandmother, who was a maid from Ireland. And this is the old Wardolph, where the Empire State Building sits now. So yes. this was like a Grand Beaux-Arts building and had a grand tradition of parties and, you know, Ostrichinski and the Wardolph salad. And the Manhattan was really like the featured cocktail there. So to my grandfather, I believe the Manhattan was the height of sophistication. And, you know, we... Like a lot of families, we have some alcoholism in our family, and my grandfather was very aware of that and wanted to treat drinking as something for special occasions, something to be done, not lightly, but uh, sophisticatedly and, and with purpose. So eating in our family was a family affair. It was a ritual. It was fresh. It was delicious, like the fresh garden vegetables that my grandmother would pick and use in her Italian cooking, you know, expose my palate to the benefits of, of fresh food. I would never had processed food growing up. Everything was kind of homemade. And the ritual of eating together in like a large family that I got from the other side, which meant my grandmother was an expert at doing a, a great mise en place and putting everything out on the table, perfectly cooked, perfect temperature all at the same time. Like I noticed these things as a kid because I noticed other, when I would go to my friend's house, I'd be like, the food is terrible. It's not cooked right. It's processed and tastes weird. So I knew that from an early age that my family was, was uh, kind of did things differently and I didn't mind them for that. You know, you always go through that, that little bit of resentment that we weren't allowed to have Captain Crunch and stuff like that, but I got to- Or shake and bake. Yeah. Or shake and bake. Yeah. <laughs> or Jiffy Pop, you know, like, no, my mom's making uh, popcorn on the stove with a uh, big heavy pot and oil. I'm like that too. <laughs> my mom only made fresh food. Mm -hmm. We weren't from an Italian background, but she always made fresh food only sometimes. When I went shopping with dad, would he let me get, you know, Captain Crunch? Mm -hmm. And then that was quickly taken away yes. by mom. No, she can't have this. She has to have the oatmeal. Yeah. So I totally understand that. Now, your family, you said one side was Italian. The other side was Irish. Irish, French, Canadian, Croatian. Real, so real what, New York. What kind of food were you? Were you only having Italian food or were you having all different kinds of all, foods? All different kinds of food. Um, my, my. The Irish, Italian, uh, the Irish, uh, Croatian, French, Canadian side was very much meat and potatoes, vegetables. And, but the Italian side was everything fresh and, and a lot of Italian cooking at home. And both my mother and my father cooked. It was a real blend between like chicken pot pie and pasta fuzzle. You know, it was, it was really <laughs> like a little bit of everything, which is great. My mom was an expert bread baker. She made all her own bread. She makes amazing cookies. She's the great like baker and my dad is, uh, well, he's a good baker too, but he's a great short order cook too. He used to make these breakfast sandwiches he called the Big Kahuna that was like a perfectly fried egg on a nice soft roll with lettuce and tomato and bacon or ham. And it was just, you just bite into it and it'd be crunchy and juicy all at the oh, same boy. time. Oh, the breakfast sandwiches <laughs> in my house in the morning were so good. So good. And yeah, we made it fun. And like I said, it was a time, you know, it was real breaking bread. It was real like mm -hmm. being together as a family. And it was a beautiful ritual that made me feel comfortable and safe. I was very blessed to have such an amazing upbringing with amazing parents and amazing extended family who kind of instilled that in me. And then, yes, because I have this like history of 
you know, once removed, my great grandparents were, you know, amazing hospitality workers working at kind of the golden age of, uh, you know, early 20th century hospitality. I really had this respect for, well, when you go out, you got to do it right. You have to order this way and you have to get this. And when you go to a certain restaurant, get their specialty, you know, it's the, it's the, it's what you do. So I think that made it really easy for me as an adult and then moving as a young adult, when I was 21 years old when I moved to New York City, it was very easy to kind of keep up that lifestyle, to shop every day local at the bodega, at the butcher. You know, I lived in the West Village and so I would go to um, Vito's Bread and Murray's Cheese. You know, I lived mm-hmm. right around the corner. I was on Morton Street in the West Village. So I went was right around the corner from that that part of McDougal that had all the the Italian bakeries and everything. So oh, everything course. was was fresh. And and then, you know, slowly as I made money or as I made friends who had money, <laughs> I was introduced to kind of more fine dining and finer cocktails. Still loved the tradition in those early days of like going to hotels, hotel bars, going to the old King Cole mm-hmm. bar and going to find Dale, going to find Audrey at Bellamance Bar. You know, like these were things I, I sought out because it reminded me, made me feel closer to my grandparents. My very first apartment uh, was on 34th Street between 9th and 10th Avenue, which was right next to St. Michael's Church, which is where my grandparents were married in 1937. And, you know, I mm-hmm. could see the out my window, the Empire State Building, where when it was a hotel, my grandma used to go there for fancy dances with her uh, older sister. My grandma's older sister was a bit of a wild child. So in order to kind of keep her grounded, they made her take her little, you know, like, if you go out, you have to take your little sister, Kitty. And it kind of backfired because my grandmother was so beautiful but very young. But when they put makeup on her and put her in a long dress and gloves, she passed as older. And that's when she caught my grandpa's eye. (laughs) I love that. Now, about drinking, okay? Mm -hmm. You said when you're 21, you moved to New York. I'm assuming here that maybe you tried one of those Manhattans before legal drinking age. We don't have to discuss that if you don't, right? No, I I was very much a square and very much a rule follower. You know, the uh-huh. rules kind of worked for me, or I thought they would. <laughs> I was still naive enough, or I was raised that, you know, that if you follow the rules, the rules will work out for you. And I, you know, I, I tasted some before. I, my grandpa liked his Manhattans with bourbon and, and sweet. It was almost like a 50-50 with sweet vermouth and bourbon, because he, he wasn't a heavy drinker. He was a light drinker. So he liked to tone down the alcohol by making it a 50-50 mm-hmm. Manhattan. And so to me, it just tasted really herbaceous and, and sweet. And I liked the cherries. I would fish the cherries out and eat those. Those, those early vermouth and bourbon soaked cherries, I could still taste them. You know, there were the red maraschino ones, but man, I loved them. And I remember like when you would get like a candied cherry on a on a dessert, I would eat it and then be like, mm, that doesn't taste as good as grandpa's cherries because it didn't oh, have, it wasn't wow. soaked in bourbon and vermouth. Of course. Of course. It was like a grown up, you know, Shirley Temple. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. For sure. Yeah. And, and even because um, I didn't have any older siblings and my cousins, you know, I remember being on a school trip and uh, uh, I was ostracized by all the kids. I was very, I was very weird. I was, I would do that kind of thing where we went to the UK and I put on a fake British accent and like walk 10 paces in front of them and pretend I didn't know them. You know, I was a very weird little girl and thought I was much more sophisticated than I was, or I was just desperately trying to be a grown up. 
And I remember we were on a bus tour with a lot of retirees. And there was one woman there who had beautiful red hair. And she looked younger than all the other old people. And she didn't have a husband. And she said, I'm too young to be on this group with all these old people. And they're very boring. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm too old to be on this trip with these young people. They're childish. So we kind of like became buddies on this bus trip across the uh, UK and Ireland. And she, um, she snuck me my first rum and Coke. She, she told me that, you know, my, my chaperones would never know that it wasn't just a Coke. And um, she also snuck me my first uh, Irish coffee, which was very good. You know, she, and, and again, she, she kind of posed okay. it as you're here, you're in Ireland, you should try this drink and not the fake mm-hmm. one that doesn't have the whiskey. <laughs> she was so lovely. And, you know, she looked after me. And like I said, I was a, I was a good kid and I was, I never wanted to betray the, the trust of my elders. So I was a little bit of a square and I would, you know, take a sip and feel like really naughty, but it was wonderful to have this introduction of, again, this is a ritual. This is a special occasion. You could order a pink lady. <laughs> oh, you were so much more sophisticated than I was. I was like, Kahlua, give yeah. me a jug of Kahlua yeah. and ask me for my ID, please. Yeah. You know, I could, with that Kahlua, you were much more sophisticated with the robbery. It took me years to learn what a robbery was. <laughs> I remember the, the bartender all summer long, I had been going to this bar with older, much older friends of mine. And the day I turned 21, I asked the bartender to ask for my ID and he got so mad at me. And of course, I realized later how terrible that was that I had deceived this poor bartender into uh, serving uh, someone underage. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, I know. Should we be talking about this? This is for- Kids, do not drink until you're of age. Well, that I mean, that's what I love about New Orleans kids is that they are exposed to alcohol at an early age. And because of that, they have they're more sophisticated drinkers by the time they t- turn 21. Like I was like I wasn't doing beer bongs and getting wasted. I mean, that's not true. No, I, me too. I was always allowed to sip things, too. Yeah. And I remember going to New Orleans when I was young and my parents ordered wine and they said, you know, we were at a restaurant and they said, oh, yes, if you're with I think at that time, it's still if true. a minor was with it's yes, still their parents are nodding. Yep. You can have a sip. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was the, when I took my alcohol responsible test, that was the one question I got wrong on the test. Because in the video, they literally showed a dad pouring wine at the table for like a a five-year-old. And I'm like, that can't be right. And they're like, no, that is legal. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. How much do we love New Orleans? No, I'm only kidding. Yes, drink responsibly. I always say yes. Of course. Yes. Of course. Now, you were in New York, but you were acting. Yes. How did you get waylaid or include drinks into that and then, you know, decide that that was going to be your change in what you were going to do? I think I was I was very lucky to live in New York and to realize very early that, you know, Dive bars are good for dive bar drinks, but hotel bars are good for like martinis. And I early on recognized that, you know, the bartender and the bar matters to how you're going to drink. And you just have to either adjust or, you know, seek out the places that you want to go. If you want to drink a certain way, go to go to a certain place. Um, a big change for me happened actually in, in 2000. I immigrated to Dublin, Ireland for two years and 99, 2001. And when I was there, there was zero cocktail culture, like nothing. Mm. Like mm. I heard a rumor that one hotel bar had a shaker. And I tried to order a martini and he had no vermouth and he made it with vodka. And I'm like, whoa, okay, this is not 
this is so I started this is not Temple Bar. <laughs> no, I know. I was like, I was like, oh From the 90s. I think you guys are missing out a little bit. So I started holding cocktail salons at my um house. I couldn't even get like the good cherries. I had my mother ship me whiskey soaked good cherries or maraschino cherries. And I made Manhattans, I made Cosmopolitans, and I think I made like gin martinis too. And I would have like little bites of food. I made little bagel bites and I'd have parties at my apartment where I would introduce people to real cocktails. And I remember the reaction of people going, this is so good. Like I've never tasted anything like this before and it's really good. And that's when I realized I could make good cocktails. I wasn't just good at ordering them. Now I was kind of good at making them as well. And um, no, no, wait a sec. Before before that, why why did you choose Dublin to move to? So I was a big Hibernophile. Was really into the Irish side of my family. Met my grandfather's first cousin, whose name was Bridget, and she kind of became came like a third grandmother to me. She was absolutely lovely, and she taught me so much about uh, the warmth of hospitality and how important that welcoming feeling is that you get from somebody just when you from because we knocked on her door as strangers and she welcomed us as as the you know beyond the family that we were really she was such a special place in my heart and um so I always loved Ireland and had an opportunity to again follow the rules and do it right I got a job there got my alien paper uh, paper alien paperwork and um my plan I mean I was you know 27 28 I really wanted to get married and have children and I was just having zero luck in New York City so I thought I'd meet a nice Irish man and then never move back and I loved Irish theater too I love uh the Royal Academy of Arts in the UK I love just being able to hop over to London to see something on the West End I love that UK style of acting that was very much outside in I loved um classics you know and I look at me the way I was in New York you know I was not getting cast in any Chekhov or Shakespeare you know it was just like it was very very difficult for me to find the kind of work I wanted to do so I kind of I thought maybe I'd have a shot in Ireland so I actually moved over and I was I was teaching I was I was training and hiring teachers for a jamboree playing music because I'd gotten very much into kind of the performance element of of teaching and I loved working with young children like I said I really wanted to be a mom so I loved being around babies all the time but I also got a side job because once I got my alien papership I was able to pick up work and I became the box office manager at the Gate Theater in Dublin and I started having interviews at the Abbey and trying to get auditions and and was really just kind of enjoying being an expat my Irish accent is Great for Americans. It's not great if you're Irish. You'll see right through it. <laughs> so actually, when I came when I came back to New York, I kind of specialized in Irish roles. <laughs> uh, I did you, all oh, the I'm Brian Freo plays, you know. <laughs> you had to wait until they needed an American. Uh, an American character was, you know, one of the plays at the Abbey Gate. Oh gosh, let me tell you, those those performers in the UK and Ireland are so good. They could do spot on American actor accents. Uh-huh. I was, I was, it was rough competition. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so you were making, but you were making cocktails. But I was making and cocktails. Enjoyed that. Loving it. And you know, when I was going to lose, if I was going to stay, you know, an option was, well, you know, you could always get a job in a pub, but I didn't want to do that kind of bartending. So I came, I came back to the States. Uh, I was, I got a little homesick. I really missed baseball. That's it's a funny thing to miss, but I, I love baseball. And I was just like, there's no baseball here. 
So I, uh, I came back to the States, moved back to New York, and uh, you took up my teaching career again, but definitely started thinking about picking up shifts in a bar and doing more bar work. And that did you see over those two years that you were gone that things had changed in New York yeah. in the cocktail scene? Yeah, absolutely. I started to see a change. Definitely, you know, people are going to start ordering cocktails when the prices start to go up. And I remember no. the first time I had a $10 martini, I was like, what? What's happening? What's going on here? What's going on here? <laughs> $10 for a martini. That's a lot. So it was, I knew, I knew something was happening. And, and, um, you know, when I started to see, I think it was, Oh, Milk and Honey opened in 1999. Um, So, yeah. And Pegu Club was like a big favorite of mine, Flatiron Lounge, you know, when those places hit. But again, it still seemed like it was um, there was already people who were like working really hard doing it. And I was just enjoying being on the other side of the bar for a long time. It wasn't until I started. um, I had these wonderful friends of mine from college who did very well. And uh, I call him my cocktail daddy because he liked to, he wanted to go out and explore all these places and he wanted someone to come with him. And um, I couldn't really afford it on a teacher's salary, but he's like, I got your drinks. He's like, if you tell me the cool places to go, I'll, I'll get your drinks. I know he was the best. My cocktail daddy, Kent Pierce, shout out to him. He, um, him and his wife really helped support me early in my career. They also had a very, wonderful taste for fine dining. And they introduced me to fine dining restaurants in New York City. And that's when I noticed a place for me because I knew great cocktail bars and I knew great cocktails. And I started going to these restaurants and I would order a Manhattan to start the meal. And even though we would spend so much money on wine and all this food, the Manhattan would come and it was terrible. It was made with bourbon. It was shaken. It didn't have bitters. And I said, oh, and they're using the wrong cherries. I was like, there's a hole in this industry where I could fill in. Restaurants need to have better cocktails. I, I saw the food scene getting better and I saw their drinks not getting better with the food. And I said, I could help you with that because I know good cocktails. And I now know good food, thanks to my friends, Kent and Sandy. So now, do you remember where you kind of pitched that to begin with? Like what restaurant it was? Like, yeah, the, the, the first restaurant. Where, where, where they had good drinks and good or, no, no, no. Where you said I can help you here. Oh, I didn't pitch. I didn't necessarily pitch him because oh. I don't want to point. I don't want to name name. Craft, Tom Calicchio from Films. <laughs> they had great food. You know, I could have gotten a bad bartender. You never know. It still happens to this day. I think it's still a challenge. People spend so much time on the food, and the drinks often become an afterthought. You. Spend so much money from for a sommelier, and how much money do you spend on your bar manager, who also has to pick up shifts and work for tips to get by? You know, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. It's, it's funny you saying that because I feel that you know, living in London, of course, like the cocktail play capital of the world. Definitely, things in the last five years have completely changed. You go to a restaurant, there's a bar menu. Sometimes there's even pairings, mm. cocktail pairings with the food. Oh, when I first started, and I would suggest that I would get laughed out of the room. You, can't. <sighs> it's cocktails are too strong to pair with food. You can't do that. It has to be wine. They told me absolutely no. So when you thought, okay, there is there's a gap here. I want to fill it. How you know it can be scary. You're here. You are doing your your job. How did you think you were going to jump right into that? There's a fair amount of like paying my dues for years. Mm -hmm. For years, it was like picking up shifts in a beer bar on the Upper East Side and wearing a dirndl and pouring like two liter boot beers. 
It was working in a craft cocktail bar that didn't have, like, I would work the slowest shifts. And I remember I complaining to my bar manager. I'm like, all I'm learning how to do is how to set up a bar and then how to clean up a bar. And he's like, well, at least you're learning that. He was very right. I was mad about it at the time, but he was right. Like I was learning the basics of, you know, I worked in really nice craft cocktail bars. I worked in high volume, you know, little cafes, craft cocktail bars. I worked at a a new cocktail bar. You know, I, I started to develop and learn from these people who had been doing it for you know almost a decade i was i was working with people who you know who worked with sasha Procheski. i was working with people who worked with dale DeGroff. i was working with people who worked with audrey saunders and so i learned those techniques and i kind of took what worked best for me and then learned that you got to adjust that to every bar that you work i worked at a whole bunch i would cobble together you know sometimes three four shifts a week at three different places working brunch at one place then go working dinner in another place and so it was a lot of of paying my dues and just and just learning. And then when I got to a point where I felt like I was ready to take over and be in a leadership position, New York at the time was very much very male, very male driven, young male driven. And in my visits to New Orleans for Tales of the Cocktails, I saw a lot more women in leadership positions down here. Plus, I really loved the food scene here. And I loved that 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 the cocktails and the food always was a thing. Like I, like I said, I was still trying to pitch fine dining restaurants to have better cocktails and do pairings, and I was told no way. Meanwhile, in New Orleans, I was seeing it happen and seeing it working, you know, that it was part of the dining experience. So I, when a job opportunity came up in, in New Orleans, I called in all my favors. I, I asked Dale DeGroff to write me a letter of recommendation. I asked my my boss, Sinjin Frizzell, to write me a letter of recommendation to get this job. And it took like a year of interviews to get it. But I finally got to come down here and um, my first time in a leadership bar position. A good, you know, talk about paying my dues. I moved here in 2012 and I really started bartending in like 2007. Hopefully a good five years. Yeah. Did you always know, even when you were cleaning up and setting up, this is it. This is what I want. This is what I want. No way. No. No way. No way. I took like temp jobs. You know, this is like after the economic collapse in 2008. I mean, there was just no work anywhere. I was doing temp jobs at Tiffany's. I was like doing administrative assistant work. I didn't, I just wanted something that, that paid a decent salary and that like allowed me to like not have to live off my credit cards every month mm-hmm. you know it was very hard it was a very hard time i think back on those five years and i, I can't even remember what i did during those times because it was just so traumatic <laughs> to work so hard and to not have any idea what you're doing or where you're going or if it's going to lead to anything the cocktail right. industry was still so new you know i had no idea if there was going to be a future in that kind of work and I was a solid 10 to 15 years older than other people right. in the industry. So I was very, didn't know if I had the, um, the endurance. To, yeah. And as you said, a woman too. A woman. In, and a, in New York. And an, and an overweight woman, you know, an overweight middle-aged woman in New York City <laughs> trying to be a bartender. I remember my legs, like how much pain I was in from standing up behind a bar all day. And... In order to, I, I developed plantar fasciitis. 
just extremely oh. painful. And one of the things that helped was riding my bike. So I worked in, uh, I lived in Washington Heights and I worked in a bar in Red Hook, Brooklyn. And th that's a distance of about 13 miles. And I would ride my bike each way to work in order How to- How long did that take you? It took me like an hour and a half. <laughs> Because I'm not a fast biker. I bike very carefully and slowly. And you have to like go over a bridge and it yes. was, and you know, and late at night coming home, I had to like, I couldn't go on the bike path because it wasn't lit. I tried to go on the bike path one night thinking it was lit and there was this part that wasn't. And I almost rode my bike into the Hudson River because <laughs> I couldn't see anything. <laughs> I'm so glad to laugh about it now. I know. At the time I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> Was there a moment in those five years where you thought, yes, 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 even a tiny glimpse? Probably my time at, at Fort Defiance. Oh, I know what it was. It was that blizzard. It was, it was a giant blizzard in New York. And so, of course, I couldn't ride my bike to work. So I, I took the train, which also took about an hour and a half. And I remember I, like Washington Heights looked okay. It was like people were shoveled. So I get on the A train, I get to J Street Borough Hall in Brooklyn, and they're like, that's it, last stop on the train, come on up. So I'm like, all right, I, I guess usually I ride the F and then walk to work, but I guess I'll, you know, get the bus. I come up and it's like snowmageddon. There are cars like abandoned in the middle of the street, like Brooklyn has been forgotten. And I end up hiking in snow drifts, sometimes that came up to my thighs, all the way to Red Hook. No cars would take me. They're like, no, Red Hook is the worst, is the worst. And I remember like I burst through the doors of Fort Defiance and my boss was there and he looks at me. He's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I came here to work my shift. And he's like, um, we didn't even get a delivery of any food. Like, I don't know if we're going to be open. I'm like, there's a Saints playoff game tonight. Yes, we are going to be open. You go get a TV. I'm here. I'm probably spending the night in this <laughs> the place because there's no waiting for me to get home. So we are opening this bar. And he's like, Yes, ma'am. Yes, we are. And the neighborhood came out. We watched the Saints win yeah. a playoff game. I'm in my snow boots, like running around, serving everyone. My regular, I, you know, everyone's like, Abigail, where are you going to sleep? I'm like, I'm just going to sleep here and like at the in the back of the restaurant. And they're like, no, no, no. Come to my house. I have a couch. And then another one's like, no, no, come to my house. I have a spare room. And then another one's like, come to my house. I have a spare room and a toothbrush for you. And I'm like, sold. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and these were just like my regular customers. Like we yeah. were like a family and we were so close. And and I felt like I was at home. And I told you I had such a wonderful upbringing and I was not able to kind of duplicate that in my personal life, but I was able to duplicate that in my professional life in that moment. And it made me feel like, yes, this is where I belong. This is my place. These are my people. I love that. I love that story. So were you able, have you felt that continuously since you've moved to New Orleans? Did you feel again when, was it the moment you started working there where you felt, yes, this is, it, it's, it's called me in. Yeah. You know, New Orleans has invited me in and I am now part of it. I, I felt that way even before I moved here. Uh, New Orleans has always been a, a special place where I felt very welcomed and supported. Someone told me early when I moved here, and it's so true, it's kind of become my motto, to live in New York City, you have to be successful. To live in Los Angeles, you have to be good looking. But to live in New Orleans, you just have to be yourself. <laughs> and I am more myself here than I am anywhere else. And, and I take that with me now wherever I go. 
New Orleans allowed me to be my true self and not only feel comfortable with that, but feel celebrated and feel supported in, in being able to be myself. So I am forever thankful. And was that from the first minute you started to work? It was, it was the, the community here and how we all look after each other. And it's the wonderful guests I have. And like I said, how the, my, my regulars, even if they don't live here, become semi-regulars, become friends. And, and then, you know, they become my family. And that has happened here more than any other place for sure. That's fabulous. Now, when you, it, you as you said, it took about a year to get this job, this first job in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. What what was the job and what did you have to do in this lead role? I opened up Sobu in the French Quarter, which was the historically very famous Brennan family in New Orleans, the side that runs Commander's Palace. This was their first restaurant back in the quarter that they wanted to do. And they wanted to do like a drinks-focused, cocktail-focused um, bistro. I, I was very excited to be a part of that. You know, I working with Miss um, Ella Brennan is definitely one of the highlights of my life. She's an absolute titan of hospitality, and I feel so lucky to have worked with her and Miss Lolly and Miss T. They were just such wonderful, you know, entryway to New Orleans culture old school New Orleans culture and and hospitality culture. I was really, really grateful to get that kind of perspective and that point of view and enjoyed, you know, this was this was my bar. I mean, this was my my first cocktail on the cocktails program and running this bar and training staff. And I gotta admit, I wasn't great at it. (laughs) You know, I had I had a lot to learn and I had a lot to do. And the and the the thing about running a bar in the French Quarter in New Orleans is you will learn those things very quickly because the number of hours I put in 50 to 70 hours a week behind that bar, suddenly I, that's when I really became a good bartender. I was good Mm -hmm. at making drinks before. I became a really good bartender working at Sobu in the French Quarter. And what do you mean by that specifically? It's just the sheer number of hours and hard work and the amount of different kind of people that you have to deal with. Because we also were in a, a, a very corporate kind of hotel environment. So that mixed with this very kind of old school New Orleans from the Commander's Palace family, mixed with bachelorette parties coming in, mixed with like wannabe mixologists, you know, who are, you know, training under me or sometimes undermining me, you know, like I had all sorts, everything to deal with. And I didn't always handle everything the best, but I certainly learned. And I learned from my mistakes and I learned a lot very quickly. I not only did I become such a good bartender, but I became a much better actor. (laughs) Like my ability to pivot and improv. I was like, why didn't I do this for my entire acting career? I would have been such a better actor. Like I just was always so perfection focused in my craft as an actor. And that really held me back. Being able to finally make mistakes is what really finally made me a better, much better bartender and a better actor as well. Yeah. And and I guess you learn as as a former actress myself, know your audience. And if you're being yeah. thrown 10 different kinds of audiences all in the matter of 15 minutes, yeah, that's, that is difficult. It's not yes. easy to do that. That is so true. Huh. That is absolutely very true. That was really overwhelming. And, you know, I definitely got that got that kind of Malcolm Gladwell perspective of, oh, yeah, do something for 10,000 yeah. hours and 
and you get really good at it. So I, that was hard and, and it gave me, but it gave me that great experience. You know, I, it's difficult in this industry. I don't know. I, there's not a lot of people who said I've had the same job for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. Right. You know, I think it's very much in our nature that, and especially when you work for tips, there's only so much money you could make, right? Because uh, you get to a certain point when you have to start shifting to more management work and then you make less money. Right. And I started to notice a pattern that every year I was making less money because, well, first of all, physically, I couldn't work as hard as I did the year before. Second of all, I, I was really starting to get some amazing uh, staff and bartenders and I wanted to keep them and keep them happy, which meant giving them good shifts and maybe taking myself out of better shifts because I because I wanted to keep my staff happy. That That's, a, that's always a challenge here in New Orleans because the minimum wage at that time was still, you know, is what, I mean, it still is. It's very, very low. COVID has changed a lot, but it was so low that, you know, you would lose staff if you couldn't like give them the best shifts. And, and if it wasn't like the hot, hottest restaurant where you could, where you can guarantee that they'd make money because they basically, you know, you're working on commission. So if you're a salesperson working on commission and you get offered a better product to sell, you're going to jump at of course. it. So I think that's kind of like eventually what happened to me when I saw I just wanted to see what life was like on the other side of Canal Street and get out of the French Quarter for a while. And that opportunity came when Ricky Gomez, uh, Larry Miller, and Nina Compton were opening up Compare La Pen. And then, you know, and just like how I kind of left a very busy kind of homey cafe to run a more fancy cocktail bar in New York, I worked at both places at the same time because I just wanted to learn different skills. Here in New Orleans, the neighborhoods are very different. They have different style restaurants and different style bars. And I wanted to keep learning and learn something new. So I, I saw this wonderful opportunity to uh, work with Nina. And boy, she was, she's awesome. She's, again, I've, since I moved to New Orleans, I've had these amazing, strong, powerful, determined, hardworking women who have, I've gotten, I've been blessed to work with, who just set such wonderful, strong examples. You know, I, the work ethic of the women I've worked with here is just, is just amazing. It's been really, really great. So, yeah, so compare Le Pen. And I had a lot more freedom. The bar was so much bigger. I could order kind of whatever I want. Ricky set up this amazing program with this determination that the, the drinks were just as, as important as the food. And Nina Compton, who wins a James Beard Award, I... that food is going to be pretty great. So the, the pressure was on us to really create an exquisite bar program that not only had really elevated drinks, but also maintain this amazing New Orleans hospitality and in a, in a hotel setting, which is a great mix. But what I, one of the things I loved about Compare was that it was a real, there was a great local following as well. Mm -hmm. So we had great New Orleans locals. We had the semi-regulars who lived there part-time and then we had tourists coming in. So I, it was a, I, I loved the, the kind of people that we got there because it was a real, a big variety. Were you able to work with the other, the chefs and the cooks there to use their produce? Was it a full on, I guess, cooperative kind of menu making experience where you get together or did you do your own thing and then present it to them? You know, how was it working in that kind of restaurant? Nina is 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 the leader. She's a very strong 
and passionate leader. We did work together like with our produce. I remember she had this amazing dish where she was uh, using a lot of corn. And I was seeing all these like juicy corn husks that had just had all their kernels removed. And I'm like, can I use those? And she's like, yeah, I'm throwing them out. So I put them, sacked them in a big Cambro. So I was always had access to her kitchen equipment. We provided juice for the kitchen. You know, we would do our juicing for the bar, but she went through a lot of juice too. So it really was a, a symbiotic relationship there. But I poured a lot of bourbon over the corn. I'm like thinking bourbon, corn, corn uh, cobs. And I just packed it. And then I put it in the in in one of our kind of storage bar chillers and, and forgot about it for a couple of months. And when I pulled it out, the corn cobs had basically like filtered the bourbon. So the bourbon was now like golden yellow and it tasted of sweet corn. And it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever tasted. And Danny Meyer happened to come into the restaurant that night. So I was like, I want to pour you some of my... um. Uh, <laughs> something I've been working on. Like I, I just infused a whole bunch of bourbon with corn and it came out really good. And he took a sip at me and he looked at me and he said, Abigail, you just invented American limoncello. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been calling it cornello. I was going to say cornello, 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 cornello. <laughs> so, and that came from just a desire of like, wanting to use every bit of the animal, as it were, mm -hmm. and, and, and to work closely with the kitchen and to find the drinks that would pair well with the food that was on the menu. So, yeah, no, I've, uh, it was very symbiotic, and I always ran cocktails by her and dishes. Always, whenever a new dish came out, I, you know, think about what we'd pair with it and how we would serve it. Mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. so you went from kind of bar to now you're for a restaurant mm -hmm. to now a hotel. Now a hotel bar. So... Yeah, I'm a little bit in uncharted territory again, right? Because we don't have a restaurant here. So now it's just, it's all on me. It's all drinks. And now I'm, I guess I'm the boss lady. I'm, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> here we go. So yeah, very. Respond out here on Lush Life, yeah. the cheap boss lady. <laughs> I just found out. I'm like, oh yeah. So yeah, no, I'm very, very excited to. First of all, this this particular hotel bar has such a wonderful history. This is the first boutique hotel in New Orleans. It's New Orleans owned. This was the first craft cocktail bar in New Orleans, you know, 1998. That predates Cure by nearly a decade. I mean, this was always kind of a bar that did really interesting, unique things. And it's funny, I feel a lot of like I'm reminiscing to that wonderful job at Fort Defiance in Brooklyn because um, there was a period when we kept running out of glassware and in a you know, desperation because I needed glassware to put cocktails in, I stopped at my local thrift store and just bought a whole bunch of mismatched glassware. And that became like the thing at Fort Defiance. Well, that's always been the thing here too at Loa. We have all this beautiful kind of vintage glassware that we put drinks in. So I immediately felt at home. I also felt at home because I've always been inspired by all the things that influence New Orleans. And that doesn't always just mean the French and the Italian, but specifically the Sicilian. More Sicilian immigrants came through the port of New Orleans than Ellis Island. Um, the Haitian influence, the Caribbean influence, uh, the influence from Western Africa, the influence of uh, Vietnam and the Philippines is a very, very felt strongly in our culture here. And not always, people don't always realize that. So being able to tell that story with the drinks and give that taste of place, to me, is very important, especially in a, in a hotel bar. 
But like I said, I really hope that we are a, a neighborhood and a local bar too, and and a, a sanctuary from the quarter. You know, we're quarter adjacent. We're in the CBD, but we're two blocks from the French Quarter. And I love being able to be like, hey, when when you need a change from that, we we have your back downtown. I'm just saying that all all those. Um kind of all those of those countries that you mentioned that people are from, how do you even attack a bar menu like that? Your first bar menu there, it's, I'm sure tough. One of the good things I have in my repertoire is, and I think this comes from New York and this comes from my grandfather, is a real love of the classics. And building off of classics to me has always kind of been one of my signature styles. Currently we have, you know, I love a martini. And when I was 21, and I was poor, I love a dirty martini because those olives would keep me alive. <laughs> Extra <laughs> olives. So I'm serving like my version of a dirty martini that uses, you know, a, a Celtic style gin um, that has the notes of the seacoast there. It has a, um, a Spanish sherry in the place of vermouth. So again, the, the manzanilla from San Luca de Baramera. It's like very rich and savory and bright. And then I made, like instead of bitters, I made a vinaigrette of Sicilian extra virgin olive oil and Vietnamese fish sauce. And that creates like this mouthfeel and this texture. And it tastes like a dirty martini, but it's clean and bright. So perfect for our New Orleans summers. And I serve it with a twist, but then a whole in an oyster shell, some Sicilian olives on the side for a snack. In case you're hungry, like I always am. <laughs> so, and um, so just again, it's a classic martini, but very much with a twist, very much kind of tells the story. It's named the Sanctity of the Gods because it's, I made it like an offering to all the gods that people brought here, the Celtic gods that were brought here from the Irish when they came, the Moors, the tradition of the Moors from southern Spain that came here, and the Vietnamese Red River gods of the Delta, their Delta, our Delta. You know, those gods exist here because the people who worship those gods exist here. So I wanted to honor all of those gods in this cocktail like an offering. So again, kind of it, it, a good cocktail has to tell a good story. And this is a very classic cocktail that tells the story of New Orleans with the ingredients. I love that. And it seems like that's a perfect way to end. Oh, good. Um, talking about one of your cocktails and seeing you there. And, you know, I feel like I want to get on an airplane right now <sighs> to try that drink. It's very tasty. I'm a big fan. You know, I always say when people are, oh, New Orleans, I say it's one of the great cities of the world. Yeah. Not of the U.S. Of the world. That's of the absolutely world. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And I say, like mm -hmm. Venice, you know, because I, I love Venice too. Venice, you know, is something that you can only get there. You know, there's, yes. there's nothing like it. And I feel the same way about New Orleans. It's just, it's one of those really, really fabulous cities. Even if you're a drinker and not a drinker. If you're a drinker, it's even better. It's even better <laughs> because it's a grown up city that has amazing bar industry yeah. professionals. It, it's really, uh, to me, one of the best hospitality cities in the world. And, you know, that was evident how important it is to our economy. I believe during COVID, the unemployment rate here was something like 95%. So you shut down the restaurants and bars and that's our livelihood here. So it's so it's really important to me. And that's one of the reasons why I was excited to move back for COVID because I want to be a part of that change and a part of that, like, hey, this is important and we should treat it 
with the importance that it deserves and and take care of the people who do this unique experience for us and make this one of the world's best cities. And we are like like you said, like Venice, what Venice had was that it was powerful in trading and it's powerful in its location. And New Orleans mm-hmm. is the same. And um, and the amount of people who brought their spirit here and imbused that in and made New Orleans what it is, is is so, so very important. And we need to mm-hmm. recognize that every day. But I really hope that that when people come to LOA, they feel like I'm bringing New Orleans to the world. You heard it here. One sip of a cocktail, you have yeah. New Orleans in a glass. So now we always end by asking two questions. I would love to know your top tip for the home bartender. Or should I say top tips? Because yeah. it can be more than one if you have. I think it's really important to have fresh ice. I know that that seems a little silly, but if you've ever tasted, you know, put ice in water and you get a weird taste, you know that your ice is a little old. So I think having fresh ice is important. So keep that in mind. Okay, I have a question about that. Because a lot of people that I ask this question say fresh ice. What do you consider fresh ice? Just one that you've made today from the water that... From the tap. Water within a week. Yeah. Okay, just tap. All right, we're going to get into specifics here. What you're... Yeah, like don't go... You have to go crazy. I mean, because this is just a really small element of your drink. But it can make... You know, it's an easy thing to do to make a big difference. Another easy thing you could do to make a big difference is use fresh fruit. I mean, don't buy mm. juices. Don't buy mixes. You can make it yourself. Fresh fruit, fresh syrups. Uh, again, don't go crazy. Uh, you don't have to make the craziest syrup, but, you know, you don't need to buy a simple syrup. You can make that. And and that that little step makes a big difference. And, yeah, same with your booze collection. You don't have to go crazy and get a, a, everything, but um, branch out and try different things, you know. Get that weird liqueur taste it, see what you can mix it with. And for heaven's sake, drink more vermouth. (laughs) And don't be afraid to like drink it like on the rocks with a twist when you get home from work. You know, you buy a bottle of vermouth to like make a martini because you have a craving for it, but finish that vermouth within a week. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I think people forget that you can ask your bartender to try Mm -hmm. some stuff. If you see something on the menu and you say, I've never heard of that liqueur. Really, if they're not too insanely busy, you say, can I try just a teeny bit Love of it, it by itself? And usually they want to help you, educate you, teach you about all different new things. So yeah. definitely ask. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you don't want to commit mm-hmm. to a whole bottle first. Mm-hmm. Now, last but not least, if you could be anywhere drinking anything right now, where would mm-hmm. it be? Well, you got me thinking about Venice, which I've never been to. So, <laughs> But I, I feel like I should talk about someplace I've actually been. and. I do love this little cafe in Rome called Barnum Cafe. It's near the Campo di Fiori. And I actually, I booked our hotel to be near the Jerry Thomas Project because I, of course, assumed I was going to go there. I never made it because the first night I stumbled into this cafe, met an amazing bartender who made amazing drinks. And the next day he was like, you're back. I'm like, why would I go anywhere else? I love this. I love you. This is great. The food is amazing. You know, by night three, I was behind the bar teaching them how to make a Remus gin fizz. Like it was so much fun. They instantly became family. So, um, you know, I, I, I guess I would be at that bar with those lovely bartenders that I met while I was there eating some um, delicious pasta and sipping on a cocktail. 
I, I, you know, I hear a theme here, yeah. which is family. And yes, we do want to go to the places where yeah. we feel like family. Absolutely. And that's, yeah. you know, hospitality. Yeah, very true. So I thank you so much oh, for being you so here. Much for having I'm me. was so excited oh, it was to have you. It was thank really you. a delight. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. All Very right. thoughtful. And I'm going to go call my mom and dad now. <laughs> Tell them how much <laughs> I love them. Thank yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. Yes, do. So I will leave you and thank you again. Thank you so much, my dear. Cheers. Cheers. It was great to have Abigail on the program. And did you know that New Orleans has incredible architecture? history oozing from every building, street, and neighborhood, and a party to be found every night filled with live music and, of course, cocktails. So don't forget to check out Loa the next time you're there, which brings us right to our Cocktail of the Week. The French 75 is a New Orleans classic and our Cocktail of the Week. This is how we make it the Abigail Gulo way. And this is what Abigail says about it. Go into any decent cocktail bar in the world and order a French 75, and the bartender will promptly make you one with gin. New Orleans is perhaps the only city in the world that will ask you first if you prefer your French 75 made with gin or brandy. While the gin version has become universally accepted, it is quite refreshing and delicious made the Loa way with their signature fresh herbs. But the drink isn't called the English 75. Many New Orleans bartenders, including those at the French 75 bar, insist a French brandy, usually cognac, be used in the creation of this cocktail. Abigail thinks it's delicious either way. And some in New Orleans even drink this seasonally with the gin version for the warmer months and the brandy version when they finally get a slight chill in the air. Now to the recipe. Take one ounce of cognac or gin, a half an ounce of lemon juice, a half an ounce of simple syrup, and add all of that to a cocktail shaker. Then add ice and shake, shake, shake. Then strain it all into a champagne glass and then top that up with champagne. Stir gently and then garnish with a lemon peel. If you're using gin and making it the low away, Abigail suggests to garnish with fresh herbs from your garden, like basil, rosemary, sage, mint, lavender, or thyme. Now toast to New Orleans. You'll find this recipe, more Louisiana cocktails, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll find almost all the ingredients in our shop. Louisiana is like no other state, a movie setting at every twist and turn. Picture-perfect scenery, captivating architecture, museums and art galleries depicting a rich history, as well as a vibrant contemporary scene. Historic river parishes and courtyards for dining or cocktails, boutiques and stores for endless tax-free shopping. I can't wait to return. Make sure you head to louisianatravel.com to find out more. So if you live for Lush Life, make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants you love and tell them how much you love them. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. 
And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Next week, we meet the first spirit to be inspired by the King Edward potato. Until that time, bottoms up.